Hello podcast listeners, I'm your host, Jacko Zwetslut. Today it is Tuesday, June 28th, 2022, and joining me here in the studio is retired Republic of Korea Army Major and now Professor Cho Dong-yeon to talk about several aspects of South Korea's military defense. But first, let me remind you all listeners, please leave a review about this podcast on iTunes or whatever platform you use, and be sure to share this podcast episode with colleagues and friends and even enemies and people you don't know. On Spotify, you can leave a rating but no reviews, but please do that anyway. And if you're listening to this on YouTube, please click like and subscribe. Secondly, check out NK News and consider buying a subscription. It's more affordable than you think. In fact, if you sign up for the annual plan, it's less than a dollar a day, and that helps to fund the excellent journalism that my colleagues put out every day. Thirdly, follow NK News Org and myself on Twitter. All right, so to introduce my guest today properly, Professor Jo Dong-yeon is a retired major of the ROC Army and is now assistant professor in the Department of Military Studies at Sogyong University in Seoul, as well as the director of the Center for Future Defense Technology and Entrepreneurship. Welcome on the show, Professor Jo. Thank you very much for having me. You're, you have quite a lot of interest and research areas as well as experience. So I thought we could talk about a few of them today. Uh, first of all, tell us a little bit about your experience of being a woman field grade officer in the ROC Army, which has a reputation for being a very male-dominated culture. How was that for you? Um, well, first of all, thank you very much for having me again. Um, so regarding your first question, definitely had been not easy. It was quite challenging. I think uh, many of the uh, women in uniform, not only in South Korea, but also abroad, definitely can understand the uh, situation, but it's getting better, I think, in comparison with the uh, 20 years ago when I just started my career at the uh, Korean Military Academy in 2000. So it's getting better, and I hope it would be better for my juniors. So I was the intelligence officer in the Republic of Korean Army. And then after uh, promotion to the uh, lieutenant colonel, no, captain and major, mm -hmm. I just moved to the uh, policy and strategy unit. So I had an opportunity to see how the uh, defense security policy and the uh, military strategy has been developed. And it was really helpful for me to study for now in the academia. So it was quite a meaningful experience for me. So you started off your military career in the intelligence uh, section of the army. Tell us a little bit about that. How do we know what we know about North Korea's army? So regarding the uh, intelligence, uh, not only in South Korea, but also the United States and abroad, there are several sources we can get together information and analyze it. So in order to acquire quantitative and quantitative intelligence from that. So I was in SIGINT, Signal Intelligence Unit. And that's listening to North Korean radio and, and, and communications. Yeah, mostly, yes, you are. Uh, correct. So signal intelligence is not only the uh, signal, but also all kinds of communication on the internet. Ah. So it's quite a lot of information we have to analyze. So there are many analysts to look at 24-7 days. And then we just try to get together all the information, not only signal, but also the uh, image and also the human resources so that we just try to get a big picture, mm -hmm. not only the pieces of information. So we try to understand what the DPRK really wants, not only at strategic level, but tactical level as well. So it is a basically the starting point of the developing operations in the military. Now, North Korea, you mentioned there uh, on the internet, uh, North Korea has a number of websites. Some of them are targeting South Korean people. Some of them target an international audience. Some of them are in Chinese for Chinese audiences. Right, right. Are those messages quite different across the different, you know, the, the different target audiences? Do they shape a very different message for each of those audiences? Oh, I think um, you can imagine, and you already mentioned a little bit about it. So the uh, country like North Korea or China, they send very strong message to the very targeted audience. So they just try to tailor all the information and the uh, message to each target audience. So of course, for example, to South Koreans, they just try to, um, North Korea just try to, how can I say, look like a very advanced 
mm-hmm. uh, economy or the uh, civil society or market economy, so that they can, in the end, have a, if we have a negotiation, then they just wanted to have upper hand. Um, the effectiveness, I don't know, mm. but some in cases, uh, some young generations in South Korea, they just love to see and look at that media, uh, for example, on YouTube. Mm-hmm. And then they, like, um, they have very different thoughts in comparison with the uh, older generations who have experienced in mm. Korean War. So. And there's also the uh, the website Uri Minjokiri, which targets uh, South Korean people. Mm. Uh, I think it's blocked in South Korea, but South Korean people who use a VPN can look at it? I think so, yes. And, and you think that some young people might be uh, interested in that kind of thing? Yeah, of course. Do you think it's more interesting because it's banned, because it's blocked by the South Koreans? Like if it was open, if South Koreans could look at North Korean uh, propaganda easily, do you think then it would lose some of its magical attraction? I think so. Some part of maybe uh, misinformation, disinformation is quite a top agenda Mm -hmm. in the United States these days. And it is not only uh, North Korea, but also many countries in Eastern Europe and Eastern part of the uh, other countries. They use this media to kind of attract the young generations mm-hmm. to understand their culture, their aim and objective. So it's quite effective in some way, you mentioned. That way also attracts, I think, young generations in a way. I've seen some of their YouTube videos and I have to, the ones that are produced in English, and I have to say that they're actually generally quite boring. They don't, <laughs> they don't seem very attractive to me. Really? I, I, can't, I can't imagine many young people being attracted to that. I see, I see. Maybe, but it's a very strange, kind of very different culture, right? Mm-hmm. So you are sometimes attracted by very the opposite kind of characteristics mm. of the uh, media. So I'm not sure, but I think so. And going back to, uh, to SIGINT, uh, there are some, or were, maybe in the past, there were some North Korean radio stations that would transmit lists of numbers, mm. long numbers. Yeah. We call them the numbers radio station. Mm. Did you ever uh, look into that and listen to that and analyze those numbers? I was not directly responsible for analyzing that numbers, Mm -hmm. but some of my colleagues are, and I think were working on that. And it really takes a lot of time Mm. because regarding the uh, signal intelligence, analyzing is a really important task, but the other one is that the sources how to identify sources from the uh, DPRK is more important than the analyzing the numbers itself. Oh. So if we just, um, those kind of activities go public, then then DPRK change the uh, sources. So it's quite um, challenging for the uh, all the uh, second analysts to, to continue the analyzing the numbers without publicizing or letting the public knowing the uh, activities itself. So uh, so you mean that So if the South Korean military is able to understand what those messages are from the numbers, then the South Korean military will not be telling people that it understands those messages? Sometimes it, it needs to be kind of a secret mm-hmm. because we just we, uh, we just want to focus that uh, sources yep. uh, from the uh, DPRK but the uh, once the DPRK understands oh South Korean analysts understand what we're doing yep. then they just try to change the the uh, signal mm. um, sources so it's really um, challenging and these days what's worse so if we just use this kind of cell phone it is um, rather easy, uh, not very difficult to interrupt, intercept the uh, signal in the air. But if they... So is that the voice to voice communication, or are we talking about uh, data being sent to and from the a mobile Data phone? in general. Okay. But if we um, maybe DPRK use the uh, kind of these kind of um, underground cable, cables, yeah. then that's really difficult. And here so in South Korea? Here in South Korea, also in North Korea, in, in the uh, DPRK. Okay, so uh, hang on. So w- what were you saying about the cables? If North Korea uses underground cables... It's if they are off front to the uh, area, then it's really challenging for the South Korean activists, uh. al- uh, analysts to inter... Accept that signal. 
Right. So underground cables are a safer way of transmitting information indeed, than a indeed, cell phone indeed. or radio. Yeah, okay. Not only in cold era, cold uh, war era, mm-hmm. the uh, Soviet Union tried to cut the uh, underwater cable um, to communicate from the uh, Western countries, right? So right. that's that still have effects. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, let's get into some basic uh, questions. Do you think that a North Korean military attack, full-scale or small-scale, uh, on South Korea uh, is likely uh, in the next five years? Very challenging question. Yeah. Um, so your, your question is quite broad, right? It so, is very broad. You can yeah. interpret that how you like it, yeah. So if, you, uh, if we are talking about the full-scale war on the Korean Peninsula, mm-hmm. the uh, possibility could be very slim. Because it's not only the uh, two Korea's problem, but also it's a Northeast Asia national security issues, but also the international. And the, in midst to the uh, the U.S. Um, really has been focused on the Asia Pacific region. So it, I think, um, not only me but also many other experts see the uh, full scale war maybe attacked by North Korea could be really um, difficult and challenging. But provocations, small-scale mm-hmm. provocations. Like Yeonpyeong-do, like the Chonan. Right. Th- those kind of a kinetic provocation can be happened, but also non-kinetic provocation can be happened. It is also still, I think, um, now happening. Mm-hmm. For example, cyber mm-hmm. activities uh, has been going on. Uh, so it is not only the military provocation, but also really uh, affected the uh, society as a whole. Yep. Uh, and we'll come back to cyber uh, later on. Uh, is the ROC military, from what you saw when you were there for 20 years, uh, ready to fight to defend South Korea from any invasion or act of aggression by North Korea? Yes, for sure. But these days, it's quite challenging for South Korean military to protect national security, peace and uh, security on the Korean Peninsula, because it's not only the problem of military provocation, and but also it's... All sources, um, provocation can be happened. Mm-hmm. And it's not only the matter of South Korean military capabilities to protect the country, but also international cooperation should be uh, more strengthened based on the Iraq and U.S. alliance. So those areas should be uh, more improved. And I think um, the, the Iraq military has been making a lot of efforts on those fronts. You mentioned international cooperation. What about cooperation with Japan? Uh, for me, as an intelligence officer, interna- intelligence sharing with Japan is imperative because it's not, um, how can I say? So South Korea is not part of the uh, Five Eyes yet, mm. but South Korea is working with Five Eyes countries as well. But on the uh, Korean Peninsula, Japan has a lot of intelligence capabilities. They have U.S. forces in Japan. And if uh, contingency happened on the Korean Peninsula, we have to work with Japan as well. So historical legacy is a setting aside, mm-hmm. or, but uh, we need to uh, work together. And I think uh, some progress has been made uh, in this administration already, in NATO as well, for now. Mm-hmm. So I think I hope um, we have a more strengthened trilateral cooperation on this front. During your time in the Army, you worked a lot with the U.S. alliance partners. You had a lot to do with, uh, with alliance issues. How is the U.S. ROC alliance? So far, so good, mm-hmm. I think. But as I mentioned already, for now, the United States military is trying to strengthen, um, how can I say, adapt commercial state-of-art capabilities and technologies against some, some adversaries. So uh, on that front, South Korea has a lot of uh, work to do mm-hmm. with the U.S. But that front is not only a military aspect, but also quite economic and then commercial sector involved. So it's quite new cooperation we have to deal with. So right after the uh, uh, Iraq and U.S. summit, uh, two leaders from the uh, U.S. and South Korea agreed to work on this cooperating uh, on new emerging technology. So I think it's the beginning 
phase of cooperation. And that's related to your new role at the Center for Future Defense Technology and Entrepreneurship, right? <laughs> I know it's quite long. It's a long title, title but yes. I hope. I hope. You know, me, I'm just a new in the academia, and then I just retired as major. Mm-hmm. So maybe if I know the direction should be um, go forward in that direction, but it's not enough for me by myself to do all the work. So I really want to help mm-hmm. the, uh, the Iraq military and the uh, U.S. forces to go forward in that direction, if I may, if I can. And how much does the uh, the Rock US alliance change in accordance with political changes in South Korea or in the United States? So Rock and US alliance has a long history. So it's not depend on it's not going to change a lot depending on the uh, the administration or political leadership change. But in South Korea for now, the more conservative administration came. Uh, to office, so I think the uh, this Rock and U.S. alliance um, officially, and I hope uh, substantially, uh, will be strengthened more. But I hope the direction to strengthen the alliance should be more kind of advanced against the uh, new challenges mm. rather than old-fashioned uh, way of thinking. Uh, you were still in the army when uh, President, U.S. President Donald Trump threatened to maybe pull out all the U.S. forces from Korea. Tell us how you felt at that time. Were you worried that that might actually happen? So when I was in the uh, Ministry of National Defense and the uh, Republic of Korean Army, I, I had a chance to work at the uh, Department of Foreign Affairs as well. Mm. So, you know, State Department in the U.S. and DOD in the U.S. has really different view on yeah. this issue. And also the president uh, back then had a lot of different uh, issues as well. So just narrowing down the uh, military aspect, Rock and U.S. military officers, we talked a lot these issues as well. Mm. But um, in the end, um, how can I say, on the field level, we just try to more strengthen our cooperation, despite mm-hmm. the political kind of a change has happening. But still, I think that that triggers more uh, military officers from the uh, two countries, more work together better. So I hope for the best in the foreseeable future as well. Now, uh, before this uh, interview, to help me prepare, you shared with me your, uh, your resume, and I looked through that, and uh, I saw there that several years ago, you wrote a master's thesis at Kyonga University on the topic of peace operations in North Korea, lessons learned from U.S. operations in Iraq and Somalia. That sounds like a very interesting title. Can you give us a little summary of what lessons were learned from U.S. operations in Iraq and Somalia that might be useful for future peace operations in North Korea? So frankly speaking, I was a master's student. So I just uh, tried to develop more comprehensive uh, strategy to deal with the North Korean issues. So from back then, from my thinking, the DPRK issue is not only the uh, militarily uh, military issue, but also humanitarian and economic issue as well. So basically, I just asserted in my thesis, South Korea and the international society has to develop two front strategies, so-called. One, uh, we have to stand against the North Korean military and the leadership, but also as well, we just try to deal with the humanitarian economic issues more uh, cooperative way. So that's quite yeah, that's quite humble thinking back mm. then. But but that's uh, kind of what the U.S. tried to do in Somalia in the early 1990s, isn't it? It was a it was a humanitarian effort rather than a military effort, unlike unlike Iraq. Right, right, right. So um, so military front, I just tried to draw some lessons from the Iraq case mm-hmm. and the humanitarian economic issues from the Somalia case. So still, I'm working on that topic. Yeah, we'll see. What kind of peace operations do you imagine would be possible in North Korea and when, in what circumstances? Um, so I think um, for now, we can look at the uh, Ukraine. Mm-hmm. So I think um, two days ago, I read a newspaper that the uh, uh, Ukraine president uh, now try to turn to more 
um, how can I say, reconstructive operations rather than the uh, assertive operations against Russia. So I think that kind of uh, transition can be thought in DPRK uh, case as well in the uh, future if if some uh, happen, something happens in the, on the Korean Peninsula. Do you mean some kind of regime change? It depends. Maybe regime change from the inner mm-hmm. side of the uh, DPRK can be happen anytime. But if um, provocation trigger some more, uh, not full-scale uh, war, but more kind of a trigger-wide, how can I say, consequences on the Korean Peninsula, mm-hmm. then maybe we have to think those kind of steps uh, we have to prepare. So, yeah, I know it's quite vague. but um, and, and you said that would be peace operations involving the international community, involving definitely. different countries? Definitely, yes. Uh, one very sensitive issue, when people talk about um, any kind of peace operations on the Korean Peninsula involving multiple countries, the question always arises, well, what about Japanese? Mm, Would, right. Could they be involved in future peace operations on the Korean Peninsula? So maybe, um, so foot, uh, how can I say, fit on the ground mm-hmm. uh, from the uh, Japan could be challenging. For for now, mm-hmm. we we haven't never really uh, have a deep uh, conversation with Japan on this issue. But peace operation itself need international assistance and cooperation definitely. So, whatever kind of assistance or uh, support from Japan, I think um, should be made mm. if some events happened uh, in on the Korean Peninsula. I also saw uh, in your resume that in 2017 you lectured the. Battle Command Training Program Group of the Opposing Forces Command, Daejeon, on North Korea's military strategy and tactics. Could you tell us about that experience? Uh, so it's a, uh, basically the uh, train rock units. So we just moved to the uh, every unit on uh, in South Korea. Mm-hmm. And then uh, we have, according to the uh, operational plan, we just exam uh, the unit's readiness um, to execute that planned operations. So for me, I was responsible for, how can I say, acting like the DPRK. Right. That's When I saw opposing forces command, I thought that's exactly what that means. Yeah, so you're, it is. You're, it's like a war game. It is. You're pretending to be North Korea. Right, right. Was that fun? Was that challenging? How, what, how did you do that? What did you have to do? So I have been trained, I had been trained as an intelligence officer. Mm. So what I have learned from the uh, basic school and the advanced school in the military, how to think like DPRK military. So mm-hmm. did you have to dress up in the uniform? No, not did you really. you have to speak with a North Korean accent? <laughs> no, not that no. kind of, but of a strategy and tactics, mm. uh, I mean. So I just try to uh, respond to the uh, rock units and see uh, how they uh, prepare for that uh, certain the North Korean military action, and so that we just try to gauge their preparedness. I think our listeners might find it interesting if you can share some overall ideas about North Korean tactics. What what makes North Korean tactics North Korean? What are their uh, defining characteristics? Oh, so tactics. So it's depending on what kind of branches you are looking at. Uh-huh. So it's quite um, really, really specific um, war game, mm. so to speak. Well, let's start with the land army then. Um, so, for example, if you look at the uh, uh, upfront artillery units, then uh, you're responding to the uh, certain rock units uh, movement, and then they just have certain rules to move. So those kind of really detailed uh, simulation mm. um, should be made on the uh, computer program. So I was behind the computer. Uh-huh. So res- rather than I just wear the uh, uniform. So I just try to uh, command all the NK military units under my command. So we just try to um, try to have a war game mm. on the uh, computer screen. And did you win any battles? Sometimes I lose, sometimes I win. Mm-hmm. So, After that experience, did you feel more or less hopeful about South Korea's ability to defend itself? As I mentioned, I really uh, have a firm how can I say, confidence in the uh, ROC forces' capabilities to deal with North Korea. But as I mentioned, with all kind of um, 
different types of threats emerging these days. So as I mentioned, maybe we can have a more conversation on the uh, new emerging threats. Mm. So cyber is a one example yeah. of new emerging uh, threats. Also space has been uh, really a prominent issue for not only South Korea, but also abroad. And number three, hypersonic missiles capabilities um, should be noted. This day. So these are the kind of technologies we have to look at because at any moment, at any time, these capabilities, these uh, technologies can be okay, transformed into the uh, military capabilities. And then DPRK is not exception. So they have also uh, many technologies and the uh, experiences. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about North Korea's cyber uh, strategy. Recently on this podcast, I interviewed Jeff White from the BBC Lazarus Heist podcast. And so he talked a lot about North Korea's cybercrime, North Korea's uh, stealing cryptocurrency, the $1 billion from the Bank of Bangladesh and other kinds of cybercrimes. Can you tell us a bit about North Korea's cyber strategy in in military terms rather than simple criminal uh, terms? So the overall DPRK's strategy is to pursue asymmetrical strategy against South Korea and U.S. What does asymmetric mean for our listeners who may not be familiar with that word? So, for example, Rocket-U.S. Alliance has tremendous conventional military capabilities in comparison with the DPRK. So if DPRK pursue full-scale conventional war on mm-hmm. the Korean Peninsula, the possibility to win could be very slim. So DPRK very wisely understand that gap between the uh, Rock and U.S. alliance and the uh, DPRK. So DPRK tried to pursue um, so-called asymmetrical military capabilities so that they can have more unconventional military capabilities Mm -hmm. to cope with the uh, Rock and U.S. alliance. For example, cyber is one of the uh, best examples they just tried to develop. Uh, and the missile capabilities in these days, uh, space and hypersonic capabilities are some examples. So, for example, the um, you mentioned cyber capabilities. I, I cannot remember the uh, exact year, but the uh, DPRK aims to uh, develop the uh, cyber strategy as well as the, uh, uh, how can I say, educate really young students, mm-hmm. brilliant students, to have better understand on this cyber tactics, uh, strategy, and all the uh, knowledge. So these are the beginning uh, for the uh, DPRK. They just try to improve cyber capabilities. And these days, these cyber capabilities uh, have a kind of, um, how can I say, really influence not only the military front, but also, as you mentioned, economic and societal uh, front as well. So what can they do? Can they, for example, turn off a South Korean power station? Some attempts uh, have been already on the public. So we can see some examples. But I think uh, many people vividly uh, remember the uh, Sony uh, hacking. Mm -hmm. Um, I think uh, that was really kind of um, a beginning or starting point uh, when many international communities recognize the uh, DPRK's uh, cyber capabilities. And I was back then working with the uh, NSA. Mm. Uh, Of course, the NSA was responsible for analyzing what's the behind that accident, that that event. But, you know, um, when we just talking about cyber capabilities, just people just imagine really brilliant, very unthinkable um, skills or tactics, but it's not that uh, as always, like, uh, for example, Sony hacking, someone mm. just sent really, um, how can I say, just good titled email yep. to inside employees, and then they, he or she just happened to open the email. So mm-hmm. those kind of uh, human kind of factor is always the matters. And also in the military front in South Korea as well. Yes, I, I should uh, jump in there and say that uh, this morning, Uh, On NK News, we published a story about a South Korean-based hacking organization that uh, conducted a spear phishing campaign against me uh, earlier this year, and they sent me an email uh, with a link in it, which I did not click on, uh, but I sent it to our uh, our cybersecurity expert, Niels, who has been working at it, looking at it with uh, 
Kaspersky and they found that it was uh, designed to take control of my computer remotely and it was not a North Korean organization but a South Korea based organization. Right, right. Also, the uh, if you just track the uh, sources mm-hmm. who just try to attempt to attack you, probably it's not in, uh, based in DPRK, maybe somewhere else, maybe Southeastern Asia countries, maybe in South Korea. So those kind of really difficult to trace back the resources. Mm. It is really delicate uh, kind of uh, characteristics the cyber capabilities can have. So, right, still really challenging. Yes, and and also very dangerous. So listeners, if you do get an email from someone you don't recognize, or if you're not sure whether the email address is correct, or in fact, if you get a link or a file, don't open it, call that person first and say, did you send me a file? That's the best way, isn't it? You would, uh, uh, I think you can learn from other people's mistakes. That's what I do these days, a two-stage verification. Someone sends me a file and I'm not expecting a file, I'll call them and say, hey, did you send me a file? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Very, very wide. Do you also practice good cyber security on yourself? Actually, when I was working in the uh, Defense Security Agency, I had a lot of kind of similar emails. Mm. Um, so my personal account, uh-huh. I don't know how they just got to know mm. my personal email address, but it's quite open society, yeah. especially in South Korea. So it's easy for them to track. If you want to learn, if you want to receive any more emails like that, you can uh, mention your email address right now. Uh, would you like? <laughs> no, thank you. I think, okay. Uh, now, from 2019 to 2020, you worked at the Korea Army Research Center developing Army Vision 2050. What is that? What's the Army Vision 2050? I know it sounds really big, but um, yeah. so as I mentioned, uh, uh, to deal with the uh, emerging new kind of threats like cyber, like cyber. Um, the Republic of Korean Army, where I belonged at that time, tried to envision after 30 years. Mm-hmm. I know it's really um, unrealistic to predict after 30 years, but that kind of a whole initiative meant to have imagination. What kind of different war will be uh, prevailed on the Korean Peninsula after 10 years, after 20 years? So then uh, what should we do to prepare for that kind of uh, new uh, challenges and new threats? So the center uh, focuses on new emerging technologies and how to work with the uh, commercial sector. For example, startups, maybe maybe companies, uh, which has really advanced technologies in comparison with the uh, government and the military these mm. days. So that's quite a new kind of initiative. So, um, yeah, still... And that's related to Army Vision 2050. Right, right, right. right. Uh, you mentioned space industry before, or space militarization, South Korea's moving into space, uh, just launched something recently. Tell us a bit about space militarization and, and North Korea. So, um, Or the we, Korean Peninsula. Right, right, right. Good question. And thank you for bringing that topic as well. Um, so... If we look at the uh, space militarization or space weaponization, uh, we can first talk about the uh, U.S.-China competition Mm. in space these days. So, for example, SpaceX or Virgin Galactic or many other uh, really new emerging startups in the Silicon Valley in the U.S. really compete with the uh, China's counterparts these days. So these commercial startups, commercial companies have advanced technologies which can be used in the um, military. But uh, uh, maybe, for example, um, DARPA in the U.S. uh, under the uh, DOD uh, has been a kind of pioneer uh, or the uh, leader Mm -hmm. in in, uh, research and development um, new technologies, for example, Internet, GPS are the uh, products of the uh, DOD's efforts, but now the uh, whole these R&D efforts has been made in commercial sector. So the uh, U.S. DOD uh, tried to engage with the uh, Silicon Valley. Yep. And then one of the uh, um, kind of war fighting areas these technologies can be used is, is space. How? How can we fight war in space? And is that even a good thing? Right, right. So um, maybe you can see some 
movies, maybe in the movies they Star just Wars. do Star Wars. So not not like that. Okay. So if we have a kind of space competition, if in kind of a military terms, it is rather more like on the ground. So in order to uh, acquire information from the uh, satellites, yep. we need to have a ground control sy- uh, station yep. as well. So these are kind of a data links uh, connected. So these kind of all the uh, infrastructure, not only in space, but also on the ground, should be really connected, well-organized, well-structured. So these are the uh, kind of a big issue, not only for DOD in the States, but also China and South Korea and other many international partners. So space competition, uh, you can better understand, is quite a really comprehensive term, not only in the space, Mm. but on the space as well as um, so those kind of uh, new advanced technology combined kind of uh, war can be imagined. And it sounds like it also includes uh, trying to block your enemy from communicating with their satellite. Right, right. So those kind of uh, efforts has been really going on. Uh, also in South Korea, not GPS, we using GPS, but also we are developing KPS, which is very similar to the uh, GPS, but complement the accuracy to have more accurate communication. Do you know what that stands for? Is that uh, Korea Position Satellite? Right. Is it? Exactly. So that's uh, one of the huge space programs South Korea kind of have invested. Do uh, hypersonic missiles also fit into this militarization of space? Is that because they leave the atmosphere? Right. So um, some of the, uh, I think we talked a little bit during the uh, seminar before, but the uh, some kind of a new characteristics these hypersonic missiles have mm. in comparison with the uh, ballistic and cruise missiles, they have very low altitude as well as really uh, fast. So ground-based radar cannot intercept easily uh, these hypersonic weapons. And some of the uh, really kind of uh, concerns uh, from many experts these days is China has been really advancing these hypersonic capabilities mm. and technologies. But in comparison with these Chinese advanced uh, hypersonic missiles program, the uh, MDA, missile defense from the uh, U.S., is still not sufficient for coping with the uh, hypersonic missiles. So that we're talking about the THAAD system, right, for example. Uh, right. So, they, so THAAD is useless against hypersonic missiles. It's not um, not against the hypersonic missiles. Mm. So uh, we have very uh, structured have uh, missile defense systems against the ballistic and cruise missiles. Uh, but the hypersonic missiles is quite new capabilities, new mm. technologies. So the I think um, the uh, DoD will publish the new missile defense review, I think, um, this year. Yeah. And I really look forward to uh, what kind of strategy they will adopt. But from my understanding, the uh, US DoD will not going to establish the uh, missile defense against the, the hypersonic missiles until 2026. Oh, that's because a few years the uh, yeah, technological gap. But for South Korean perspective, uh, it is quite challenging mm. because we have extended deterrence, right? Using the uh, the U.S. missile defense capabilities, and then from North Koreans' uh, capabilities, they haven't yet advanced the up to the level to develop the uh, full hypersonic missile capabilities. Mm. But they have a potential. They did test one earlier this year, they didn't they? They claimed, but the uh, uh-huh. really, if you look at really technologically yeah. deep inside of the program, that's not very sure capabilities yet. Mm. But still, we have to prepare for that. Okay, so China definitely has hypersonic missiles. Right. Does the U.S. also have hypersonic missiles? Definitely, but mm-hmm. um, I think um, some technological areas the U.S. and China compete these days is quite neck and neck. Mm-hmm. So neck, neck. the quantum computer, hypersonic missiles, and as well as artificial intelligence and autonomy, those uh, areas are very, how can I say, China and the uh, um, the U.S. compete mm-hmm. each other, so we will see. Are you nervous about uh, artificial intelligence? Uh, in what way? 
Well, you know, there are, this is not North Korea related, but if you listen to some people, uh, they see that artificial intelligence could, be, especially general artificial intelligence, could be a threat to humanity's existence uh, 10, 20, 30 years from now. So actually, this kind of topic has been really uh, brought up early this year, I mm. think. Um, so AI community in South Korea um, always um, try to make the uh, public understand how far the uh, artificial intelligence, intelligence can do, mm-hmm. uh, for example, for the uh, military operations. And the uh, many AI experts in South Korea admit um, that the uh, maturity uh, and readiness of this artificial intelligence has not been uh, yet up to the, uh, the military operations. Do you know what I mean? So it's not um, still uh, really a, a lot of gap between mm. the uh, theory of artificial intelligence and the uh, practice of artific- artificial intelligence can be used. Uh, but still, artificial intelligence can be used uh, not only the uh, combat purpose uh, operations, but also many logistic operations can be used. So. Uh, rather than uh, afraid of the uh, artificial intelligence, I just try to look at the uh, potential how the military can leverage the uh, this emerging technologies in um, not only military operations but also the uh, other uh, domestic uh, logistical uh, operations in the military. Do you see any evidence that North Korea is uh, doing research area doing research in the area of artificial intelligence or uh, quantum computing? Uh, I haven't uh, read or heard of those news, but the, uh, as I mentioned, the DPRK improved uh, their cyber capabilities a lot. Yeah. So based on the uh, cyber capabilities, they can expand the uh, knowledge base, I think, uh, to work with China, uh, maybe other partners on this uh, front, because basically in order to leverage the artificial intelligence, you need a lot of data based on the uh, really uh, well-organized data set. Then you can use that data set to command this artificial intelligence to do something. But China is very famous uh, for collecting all the private information, really. So... I, I'm not sure how they cooperate mm. on this front, but I'm a little bit afraid of this cyber capabilities can be used for improving artificial intelligence. Mm. Uh, now, you're also involved in uh, projects on developing the standardization of dual-use unmanned aerial vehicles or UAVs or drones. Tell us about drones in North and South Korea. Uh, what are they used for? And what do we know about North Korea's drone capability? Mm. So this is the uh, five-year research project, and I am working with the uh, Seoul National University and Kari on this um, project. So this is the first year, so I cannot tell the uh, the result of mm. the whole uh, project yet. But bro- uh, from my uh, basic research and understanding, the uh, commercial drone market, uh, global drone market, has been dominated by China's a private company, more than 70% of mm. the uh, commercial drone market has been dominated uh, Chinese company, so-called DJI. And then the you can see some examples in the Ukraine war. Uh. Many um, commercial uh, drones had been used, right? These are mainly drones with cameras to, to see what's going on. Is that right? Right. So mm-hmm. the, these are the uh, called ISR, so Intelligence Surveillance and Reconnaissance Purpose. Mm-hmm. But we look at the uh, Ukraine case. These uh, drones can be equipped with the uh, shooting capabilities oh. as well. So they see and shoot ah. at the same time. So it is quite a threat for Russia as well. Uh, and it's quite um, changing some or, how can I say, not paradigm as a whole, but um, it's some changes, some landscape in war. Um, so from South Korean perspective, so if you look at the uh, South Korean drone market, 70%, more than 70% of South Korea's drone uh, market heavily depended on China mm. uh, and then U.S. as well. The U.S., uh, I think, um, for now as well, heavily depended on the Chinese component to make drones 
And these are not the exception for the uh, military operations as well. So they just try to fix it. The United States want to fix it. In South Korea, the whole purpose of this research project is to fix the situation as well. So we just try to... Um, you mean to use non-Chinese drones? Non-Chinese um, drones or non-Chinese components mm. uh, so that we can uh, improve the uh, South Korea's domestic drone market. And also these drones can be used in the military. So dual-use unmanned aerial vehicles, the dual there is what, military and civilian? And civilian, That's right. Yeah, okay. Yes. Now, I remember a few years ago, I think it was when President Moon was president, that there were some drones that came down in South Korea. Maybe they ran out of battery or they crashed or something, but they were from North Korea and there was an SD card with some photographs of sensitive locations right. in these drones. Were you still in the military then? So you, you mean the uh, North Korea has Yeah, North still Korea drones. Um, yeah. I think so, because um, drone is quite cheap but very effective to um, accomplish ISR missions. So it's quite uh, relatively uh, easy to monitor uh, with the uh, drones. So for example, uh, my children can play with the uh, drones. Mm -hmm. They can fly these uh, really small commercial drones to look at the uh, neighbors maybe, right? But these are the also can be used uh, in the military operations as well because it is really difficult to detect because mm. it's so small. Yeah. And if it's uh, fly with uh, really little noise, then it is really difficult to kind of, uh, kind of detect and intercept. So mm. um, North Korea, definitely part of its asymmetrical um, strategy, drone can be used, but it's not very advanced technologies equipped with the, uh, that drawn uh, from the uh, DPRK back then, I think. Let, let me ask a couple of practical questions. So imagine, so North Korea sends a drone across the demilitarized zone into South Korea. North Korea wants to get some photographs of the Blue House. How far can a North Korean drone travel in South Korea and still be in control, still be controlled by a North Korean person on the ground back in, in North Korea? Oh, so it's quite technological question. So I have no answer for that. But based on my really basic understanding. Mm -hmm. So, you, so the, the uh, data link between the uh, drone yep. platform and the uh, ground control system yep. is depending on the uh, battery, also the uh, communication links. Right. So if you, if you want to have more advanced um, kind of uh, ISR capabilities, then you should be larger. Uh, drone. A larger drone. Right. Okay. For example, like in Ukraine, mm -hmm. the, uh, the drone from Turkey, it's more than um, 10 kilogram. So it's mm -hmm. quite, quite big. big. Uh, Probably noisy too. Right. right. It's very visible, right? Yeah. So it's a wartime, yeah. then they can be used. Mm. But in the peacetime or, yeah. the, uh, or maybe just um, these uh, daily times, then it can be really uh, detectable. And then yeah. after that uh, accident, mm -hmm. counter drone capabilities has been widely developed. So really important so buildings. Like jamming signals jamming to signals. break the data link. Right, right, okay. right. So it's a kinetic or non-kinetic yeah. uh, can be used to uh, counter drone threats. So it's more challenging yeah. um, for the uh, users to drone use drones. Okay, so if I had here in South Korea, I have, let's say I go to Namdumu and I buy a, a commercial drone, some Chinese commercial drone, and I go up to the demilitarized zone, how far can I fly that thing into North Korea before I lose the data link? Two kilometers, 10 kilometers? You are not permitted to fly no, of course, drones. I'm, but, um, not allowed to, but let's say I was like Pak Sang-hak and I broke the law. Let's <laughs> say I did that, I go up there and somehow the South Korean military doesn't see me. And so I'm at the very southern edge of the, of the demilitarized zone. I'm inside the civilian control area and I want to fly this, this drone to Pyongyang. Can I go to Pyongyang or is that too far? Uh, so based on the uh, what kind of drones you purchased yes. at the first place. Well, a, a so, small, quiet, commercially right. but available. But we actually had uh, conducted research yeah. on the uh, commercial drones, yeah. how far it can fly. Yeah. But it's really, how do I can say, very uh, depending on the uh, drone's battery mm -hmm. and, as I mentioned, the communication links. Yep. So And then also weather. 
Okay. Yeah, so depending on all these things, is Pyongyang possible? No, I don't think That'd so. Be it, it's okay. So, so maybe so, Kaesong. So it's it's a really uh, not simple. Um, I cannot give you a very simple uh, answer to mm-hmm. that question. But if we just limit commercial drones, yeah. then it is uh, usually less than 100 kilogram. For example, sure. In size, in weight, in in, in weight. Sure. Yeah. So in weight, mm-hmm. and then um, kind of a maximum weight if less than 100 kilogram or. Uh, usually in the field, we use less than maybe 10 kilogram mm-hmm. um, drones usually yeah. uh, at the uh, battalion, up to the battalion level. Mm-hmm. Then it cannot definitely go up to the Pyongyang okay. with this really uh, small UAS. Yeah. But if you have a bigger one, mm. then definitely it's a different story. Mm. So that's a non-commercial one. It's something like what the Turkish are making, for yeah, example. Yeah, it is a military, yeah. uh, more big uh, right. drones. And if if I'm not controlling it, are there drones where I can program it? I can say, look, uh, I don't need a data link. Just uh, fly to Pyongyang, take some photographs and come back. This is the program. Is that possible? Is that feasible now? We are developing now. So it's a really good question because it is a, one of the ways to we use autonomous and the artificial intelligence right. in drones. Yeah. But we are trying to develop the really fully autonomous uh, right. Vehicles. So you don't need a controller. You don't need a data yeah, link. Yeah, but it just we goes. have to input some yeah, information input some, yeah. and then fly a flight path. But the the technology technological readiness, mm. uh, we just call it TRL. It's not um, up to, from my really basic understanding, yeah. up to seven. But if you use seven, seven is um, so. If you want to use uh, in the uh, military, yeah. we need uh, more eight to nine. Uh, TRLs level. Ten, ten is maximum. Ten is maximum. Okay. So one to ten. Uh-huh. Then, then so it's not fully mature the mm. technologies because it's really uh, if you want to use for the military operations, it, it should be have assured not only readiness but also the uh, how can I say trustiness and safety mm. should be tested. But uh, we haven't been fully tested right. that capabilities in that purpose, right? Yeah. But and, still going on. I'm guessing that uh, the, the, the weakness or the drawback of an autonomous drone is that if you're sending a drone to, let's say, for example, to Pyongyang to take some photographs or some film footage, the drone cannot send that footage back here. It has to fly back with a, with a memory card. Is, is that, am um, I understanding that correctly? But we already uh, have ISR capabilities, so we do not use really small UAS for the purpose, ah. but we have already a really... Um, global Hawk oh, or the okay. uh, whole full-scale um, RSR capabilities yeah. deployed uh, in South Korea. Right. Um, so, but if that flies over North Korea, that's detectable, isn't it? I think it's detectable, but it's a two-purpose, right? So one is uh, for purpose. We we should be detected. Oh, you so, want it, you want it to be detected, right? Right. So to so sort of send a message to North Korea. Send a Korea. message. So because the uh, DPRK use a lot of kind of. Um, Techniques to send a message mm-hmm. um, for the uh, Iraq and U.S. alliance, mm-hmm. especially um, during this season, if uh, Iraq and U.S. conduct the uh, combined exercises, and then the PRK wants to show um, their capability, military capabilities. So it's a it's a one way to send our signal, military readiness. So we are watching you. Don't move. Like those kind of a message can be really. Uh, strong mm-hmm. but the other one is um, as i mentioned the intelligence community uh, we just uh, try to gather all kinds of intelligence information to get a big picture so signal definitely uh, image using these uh, uh, global hulk or those kind of intelligence assets and three human and those other civil um, information maybe youtube those kind of all the intelligence and information get together and analyzed every day so with the global hawk what uh, what kind of um without entering north korean airspace what kind of images are available of, of north korea actually it's really um not strange but um, interesting to mm-hmm. see civilian uh, imaging processing uh, companies already have kind of acquired a really uh, quality image, not only in North Korea, but also around globe. So, for example, when we look at the uh, 
some situation in North Korea, I definitely look at the uh, Google map. I see. So it's quite... Okay, but that's satellite. That's not Global Hawk though, isn't it? Uh, no, no. But a satellite image is really a kind of a zoom in yep. uh, in one kind of a spot area. Mm-hmm. So these days, as I mentioned, the commercial technology has been more advanced sure. than the uh, military technology. So we don't have to stick to... Um, the certain military platform to have ISR capabilities. We can use um, the uh, civilian capabilities or even the uh, U.S. DoD. I know, as far as I know, land some uh, intelligence analysts uh, in private company mm-hmm. so that they can just buy, purchase those reports from the uh, civilian mm-hmm. sector. So it's quite new kind of a challenging, um, how can I say, trends. Right, so this is that what the collaboration between uh, uh, governments, so military and and private enterprise. Right, and that leads us back to your uh, center for the future Deve- defense technology and entrepreneurship at Sogong University. Do you want to uh, finish off this interview by telling us a little bit more about that? How how, how many of you are there at the center? Is it big? Is it just you? Is it? <laughs> uh, very very uh, good question. Before answering that question, last question, I think I just want to do some work like the uh, as you do so you are the uh, really sound um, and then independent some how can I say broadcasting uh, and try to gather really uh, insights Mm. and information on not only DPRK but also national security issues as well so these are the uh, work is really invaluable not only for the uh, the audience uh, in the society, but also the military. For me, um, I'm still relatively young, so I just want to help the military to advance and develop more comprehensive strategy, but it's not enough for uh, the military itself. Uh, it needs more cooperation and understanding from outside of the military, as I mentioned, the uh, technological advancements. Yeah. So, so I want to just um, play a bridging role uh, between the uh, civilian part and the uh, military uh, part um, in South Korea for the first step because these two groups never <laughs> can be closed mm. because of a historical background in South Korea. So I really want to bridge those uh, gaps. But my focus area should be more emerging uh, threats, as I mentioned before. So, yeah, that's my hope. Okay, so the Center for Future Defense Technology and Entrepreneurship. Ah, uh, so but how many? Yes. So we have a 10. Mm. Um, so it's a student, uh-huh. a PhD student. Students at, at, at Sogyong University. Right. Not, right. not only Sogyong University, uh-huh. but also the uh, other university. So they just came to involve the, some projects or they just want to have a better understanding the uh, defense sector. Mm. So I really uh, um, get some uh, insights from the students, and then they just learn from me about the uh, national security or defense sector. So, And, and you said together. that you, you want to be a, a sound and independent information and story gatherer from, uh, from military and civilian sectors. Do you want to, uh, do you have any plans to start a podcast <laughs> about the Korean military or uh, Korean defense issues? <laughs> If I have uh, really uh, good good skills like you to to convey my thoughts, and uh, but I'm not very good at those, so I really just um, try to help you or other uh, media to better understand this mm-hmm. issue. So that's that's my kind of. Uh, that's the bridging role that you see for right, yourself. Right, right, right. Okay, well, I, I want to thank you very much for coming on the show, and, and good luck with uh, with doing that, fulfilling that bridging function. Uh, in the future to help people better understand uh, Korea and Korean defense issues. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Jo Dong-yeon. Are you on Twitter? Is there any way that people can follow your research or work or anything? Um, Actually, after the uh, president election, I just cut all the uh, SNS, but I will just try to remake. Okay. Yes. All right. I'll let you know later. Let us know and we can add that to the the show notes on the website. Yeah, Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, that brings us to the end of today's podcast. If you already have an NK News account and if you're a think tank, business or academic institution, take a look at NK Pro. Our NK Pro platform offers unparalleled services specifically catering to the needs of professionals 
who monitor developments on the Korean Peninsula. You can inquire about access or a free trial membership by sending an email to membership at nknews.org today. Our thanks, as always, go to Arias Dare and Brian Betts for facilitating this podcast and to our post-recording producer genius, Gabby Magnuson, all the way down in New Zealand, who cuts out the extraneous noises, awkward silences, bodily functions, etc. Thanks very much, Gabby, and thanks to everyone for listening. Check us again next time. <laughs>